I'm going to make you host, Mike. Yep, I'm going to share. Let's let's get out for sure. Oh, Heidi's being good. She's drinking water this morning. Not yeah, coffee. after coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a shame. <laughs> PowerPoint. <laughs> All right, if you guys can check your sound, I'll get a little bit of feedback. We'll get rolling. Love having the power to mute everybody. Who is this? Gotcha. Okay. All right, we're good to roll. All right, here's what we'll do. Let's get started. Um, I'm going to experiment with just a little different note-taking technique with my phone, too. So, all right. So, uh, jumping into week number eight, chapter six, okay? You know, I, I, I'm going to just throw it out there. My favorite quote, you know, one of my favorite quotes in Nehemiah comes in this chapter. You know, so I just titled, I'm doing great work, I can't come down. You know, so that is, is, is my saying that I've adopted. And I think that everybody should adopt that saying. So, you know, very simple. You'll see it in context here coming up very shortly. Um, but I, I do believe, you know, let's, let's think about anything we take a lot of pride in, okay? So let me start with like, uh, you know, marriage, okay? Or parenting, okay? There's always things that distract us from enriching our marriage, from enriching our role as a parent. Imagine if you responded, you know, when I got a work email and, it's, and I'd say, I'm doing great work and I can't come down, okay? Or I'm taking my wife on a, a, a trip, I'm going to take a day off, okay? And all of a sudden a big project comes in and, or something where I can't miss that day of work, I can't take off. What if I told my boss, I'm doing great work, I can't come down? You know, what if that stay-at-home mom you know, had no money, but got an opportunity to work and maybe go back to work and jeopardize what they've committed to as being a stay-at-home mom. And they actually just responded by saying, I'm doing great work. I can't come down. You know, so think about all these applications as we get into this. It's not just about, you know, we, we pigeonhole leadership into, you know, what the world thinks leadership is. Leadership is when you take a role you know, and you prioritize anything in your life. So I, I think there's application across the spectrum for anybody, you know, from the highest authority, the highest ranking authority around, you know, to that, to that modest servant that's just committed to something. It really think of it in terms of vision. You know, when you're committed to a personal vision, you need to have a response for all the distractions that are going to come your way. So this is kind of what we're going to get into. Um, you know, the other thing that I would say is, you know, like for me right now, okay, I, I, I'm struggling with this a bit because I always take more and more and more on. So I'm in a group with 10 men. We're reading through the Bible in a year. So we're reading uh, four chapters a day in the Old Testament. So I've committed to that. I'm witnessing to a guy that's unsaved, and we bought a Max Lucado book entitled Jesus. So I'm reading a chapter a day with him. Okay, I've committed to Ray to teaching this course on Nehemiah. So I'm reading 
um, three or four books on Nehemiah at the same time. Like I'm maxed at this point, although it's awesome. You know, like God gave me this back injury so I could just read. You know, I'm laying flat in my back reading. So it's, it's pretty good, okay? But just think to yourself, at what point do you say no to things and distractions and I'm doing great work, I can't come down, okay? There's my little intro speech and I'll, I'll shut up now. Okay, a couple of reminders from last week. Okay, let me go through some of our, you know, reminders. Um, you know, we, we talked a lot about, you know, some of the problems causing that, that came in Nehemiah's way. But what really came out for me last week was that when you ignore problems, remember Nehemiah took it head on. Okay, he made public speeches. He went after the issues without, without holding back. When you don't deal with a problem, it's going to go underground and those roots are going to get deeper and they're going to bear more bitter fruit. Okay. Remember that bamboo tree that's next to my neighbor's got, okay. That bamboo tree's got roots that go forever. And I didn't even know it existed. And all of a sudden I got shoots coming up all over my backyard. Okay. That those roots will expose themselves. Okay. The next thing change will reveal problems. Okay, so, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to go through any kind of vision or any kind of project that you set out to do. But what it's going to do is reveal problems that were already there before you started, but they're going to blame it on your project. Okay, so be prepared for that. You know, Nehemiah was getting blamed for things that existed long before he even got there. Okay, you know, because we remember that when we looked at, you know, um, people taxing their own, you know, their own people. Uh, people starving their own people, putting their own people in slavery. That all was taking place before Nehemiah started building the wall. The, the third thing we, we, thought, we talked about last week was, remember, people have daily needs they have to take care of, okay? And that demands their attention. So th they are going to feel an, a level of anxiety when you put people towards a project that you have to make sure they feel comfortable with their basic needs, okay? So remember, that's going to take place as well. Okay, and then finally, the last thing I thought I'd just at least talk about, I really got caught up personally with moral authority, you know, and, and I think that, you know, you think about, I listened to, uh, good Lord, who's the, uh, who's the guy on Fox that's the old governor from Arkansas? Uh, he ran for president, okay? Uh, whoever made- Mike, Mike Huckabee. Thank you. Huckabee came on and he used the term moral authority, you know, being interviewed on Fox, I almost- I almost stood up and screamed like he's exactly right. Like when you look at what Cuomo's hat, what's happening with Cuomo in New York, okay, you can't lead, you can't lead a nation, you can't lead a city like New York when you don't have moral authority or that moral authority is being questioned. And, you know, you have to resolve that, you know, and I think that that's what he responded to in Fox. I'm thinking, you know, exactly right. I hear a comment coming now. Okay, so you know those those things, and I think for me, you know, I, I know personally, you know, my personal righteousness uh, is extremely important. So I think as you get into that, that's 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 where you got to put that at the at the fore, forefront. Okay. Any any comments from last week? Any thoughts? You takeaways? You have reflections? Okay, let's dive into this week. Right, that's it. Let's let's get it. Okay, so we're going to dive right into chapter six. So hopefully you took a took a look at some of this stuff. Okay, so remember, 
you know, they made all these attempts to stop the building of the wall. So we find out, you know, what's the progress at this point? Okay, so let's read verse one and two to start off with. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, I had not set the doors and the gates. So what it feels like is the wall is secure. Okay, that is complete. Now we have what? Gates, okay, and doors that are left to be done. So they're still finishing. You know, we still got to finish the project. But boy, are we at a point now where we made it through a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure. Now we're going to see what, what people do when they're desperate. What, what does your enemy do when they're desperate? Okay, so in verse two, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. Okay, so, you know, as we look in this, you know, you have to think about, you know, think about the average pressure a leader goes through on a daily basis. I had an awesome uh, experience personally. I was a, a school administrator and I had this desire to be a football coach. So I left being an administrator. I, I, I wrote my wife a note and said, I'm taking a $15,000 pay cut. And I'm going back to teaching and coaching. You know, that went over fantastic many years ago. I'll, I'll let you know, that's a whole sidebar story. I gotta be careful, her brother's sitting in the room. Okay, so um, what I would say is when I did that, okay, I remember going into the faculty room every day as a teacher now and having lunch. So there's probably 15 to 20 teachers in there. And all they do is gripe about the leadership. They're griping about the principals. They're griping about the assistant principals. And I just sat there like eating my lunch, just smiling because they used to be me, you know, and I just listened to these people yippity yap. And I didn't realize how much griping went on every single day about the leaders. Like, I guess I was in, you know, this, this state where I thought, no, nah, nobody's talking about me. People talk about leadership every day. They complain about leaders every day. Don't fool yourself. Okay, so I think when we approach that and we know that that, you know, the the buzzards are swarming all the time, you know, Ryan runs a company. Do you think his company of insulators doesn't, doesn't say negative things about Ryan? They say it every single day, all the time. Every time he asks them to do something, somebody doesn't like it. Okay, you're kidding yourself if you don't think it's happening. Okay, so. You know, that's just a personal experience, but it was a wake up call for me, you know, that was probably almost 20 years ago. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really happening. OK, they're really talking negative about these people. So in this chapter, the focus now is not on the people building the wall. They are directly focusing on the leader. OK, they're coming after the leader in this chapter. It's a personal attack against Nehemiah. Okay, so let's see what happens. So the first thing, Sanballat and Geshem, remember, okay, we have to remember where they're located. So let's let's take a look at the next slide here. I highlighted a couple of things. You know, I talked about what's left, the doors and the gates. Okay, so Sanballat and Geshem say, come, let's meet together. Okay, so do you go and meet with them or not? You know, the bottom line is this. So think about all of this. They're, they ask them to come meet at Ono. Ono is about 25 miles away from Jerusalem. So it's about halfway between Samaria and Jerusalem, okay? And what I found very interesting is when you look at um, the different, uh, you know, the, the different text, okay? I'm using the NIV. 
but I think it was the American Standard. They actually, um, they, they said, you, you know, like in this passage, it says one of the villages on the plain of Ono, okay? In one of the translations, they actually define the village as seraphim, okay? Seraphim actually means lions, okay? And then the plain of Ono, Ono means vigorous. So think about where this enemy asked you to meet, the vigorous place of lions, okay? So like we think about what Peter said, and Peter said our adversary prowls like a lion. So think about this. Nehemiah was invited to Ono, okay, which is a village of lions, okay? Not only just a village, but it's one where it's vigorous, okay? So think about it. You're getting set up. Okay, now, you know, Nehemiah could have also thought, you know, maybe they, they want to make peace, right? You know, maybe they want to set a treaty agreement, you know, um, you, you know, so, so at what point do you think, okay, your enemy is now no longer your enemy? I, I think, you know, Nehemiah was very quick to say they're scheming to harm me. Okay, I don't know. I mean, how much time do we spend considering our enemies and restoration? You know, let's let's talk about that a little bit. They've been enemies for a long time. You know, at what point do you let your guard down and, and work with people who oppose you? Do you ever work with people who oppose you? Well, you use the word restoration, and I, I my immediate thought, I mean, I, I was like, wow, that's hard because God desires restoration, right? God is honored and glorified by that. Uh, that's what Jesus came to do is to restore us to right relationship with him. So um, do you ever? Yes. But I think you have to be discerning. So the one thing I, you know, in my mind, it came out too. you know, I just, I, I wrote a little note to myself, leaders got to take great care of who they cooperate with. So do we as, as Christians. So, you know, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Okay. That, that, that's what we see. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Second Corinthians six fourteen. So in, in thinking of that, you know, remember, I don't know if some of you know, but I came to know the Lord because my wife was a believer and she called off my marriage because I was not a believer. I proposed to her, she accepted, and then she called my marriage off because I wasn't at a point where I accepted the Lord and we couldn't be equally yoked. That that pushed me over, baby. That made, that came brought me to the Lord. So for me, this is a hard conversation because I'm a product of God's righteousness and, you know, her fraternizing with the enemy, so to speak. Okay. So I think this is a very difficult conversation for me because I have a, a life experience that goes along with this. Any other comments? Okay, let's read. Let's keep going. Okay, so Nehemiah said, I sent messengers to them with this reply. And again, favorite, favorite term around, highlight it, bold it, circle it in your Bible. It's awesome. I'm carrying on a great pro project. I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. So imagine, you know, again, I, I can't imagine this was like an email, right? Or a text message. This was probably a message that took some time to get carried from one place to another. 
and they did it four times. And Nehemiah sent him the same message every time. I mean, it's kind of comical, to be honest with you. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to meet me with the same message in his hand. And it was a sealed, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. Sorry, unsealed letter. That's important. Okay. So let's think about this a little bit. You know, again, I highlighted the, the good passage here. Okay. Um, you know, the fifth time was an unsealed letter. So let's just talk a little bit. Like I, I studied two different authors, Warren Wiersbe and, and uh, Andy Stanley. So Wiersbe talks about the, you know, the three convictions, you know, that we go through as leaders. Okay. One is the first conviction, spiritual discernment. Okay. Nehemiah knew they were lying. So obviously he had some type of spiritual discernment. The second conviction I believe Nehemiah had was he was committed to a project. You know, leaders stay on the job. Okay. When he says I'm carrying on a great project and I can't come, come down, he's committed. Okay. And then the third conviction I believe is, you know, that Wiersbe identified, and I, I, I agree with this, is there needs to be separation between believers and unbelievers, you know, in, in, uh, in, you know, in times like this, obviously. You know, God's people are different from the people of the world, and they must maintain a separate position. So those are the three convictions that Wearsby brought up, which I found very interesting. Okay. Um, you know, the other thing that I really think we need to take a, a really good look at is, again, you know, it's funny. As I was studying to prepare for this, I don't know how you set your Outlook email, but mine dings every time it downloads emails. And, and sometimes when I have my sound on, I, it, it hits me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm hearing a ding every, how, whatever it is, every minute, two minutes, three minutes, whatever it is. And I have to turn the ding off because, you know, I'm working on a great project and I can't come down. You know, a lot of times, I, you know, do you, you know I'm a little ADHD, so I'm going to click into Outlook. Okay, the minute I click into Outlook, I never click right out. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now. If I go into email, it's never open email and close. It's open, read, respond, read, respond. And sometimes when I just incidentally click on email, I'm in there for 30 minutes. You know, the same thing holds true when you, when you scroll social media. Okay. When you lose your focus and you scroll through Facebook, you scroll through Instagram. Okay. Five minutes turns into 20, turns into 30, and it's a waste of time. TV is the same way. Okay. If you have this mindset that you're doing this project and you have a great project, you're not bouncing to many things. And I think that's important. Okay, any, any thoughts so far before I hit this unsealed letter? Well, I, I think we can apply that to, to uh, I guess, anything that's, that we need to make priority in our life. Um, I think about that, just even spending time with kids, you know, when – when you're at home, um, that's a great project. You're parenting your children. You're raising them up. Um, so often, just like you said, you gotta you gotta set your phone down on the other side of the house because um, you're working on a great project and you can't come down. Well, and you have you have teenagers, Ryan, and like we tell our teenagers that they've got to not plug their phones in in their bedrooms at night because of what distraction it might be right yep but we're the biggest hypocrites on the planet you're playing ball with your kid and your phone's in your pocket yep 
You know, there is a mental and physical response to a notification. Okay. If it ain't in your pocket, you don't know what's going on. Just saying. Any other yep. thoughts? Okay. Let's dig into the unsealed letter here a little bit. Okay. So Andy Stanley talks about, uh, you know, uh, Wearsby talked about convictions that we have to have as leaders. Stanley approached it as distractions. Okay. So Andy Stanley said the first thing that we look for is, you know, we can always be busier doing things that are not part of God's plan. Okay. So this goes back to verse three. Okay. Every day opportunities come along that God's not calling us to do. You know, and I just, you know, email notifications. That's a good one. We talked about that. So that's, that's the first distraction that Stanley recognizes. So let's get into the second one, which has a deal with this letter. Okay. The letter that was written, okay, was an unsealed letter. So typically when letters were sent in those days, they were written either on leather or they called it uh, papyrus, which was it's like paper, you know, so to speak. And it was rolled tight and it was sealed with clay. Okay, Sanballat purposely neglected to seal the letter. Okay, why do you think that took place? So he sent this, his aide with a message and a sealed, an unsealed letter. Good old Sanballat accidentally didn't seal it. So this letter is going to travel, you know, 25 miles, which is a day of travel. What's going to happen with that letter? What's going to happen with the contents of the letter? Everybody knows. Everybody knows. So here is the Old Testament social media, right? Okay, we're going to start popping gossip out there. Okay, you know, they're going to get after Nehemiah with gossip. Think about in the church. You know, I heard Ray Stewart was sucking weight, okay, because uh, he's got a crippling disease. Okay, that's not true. Ray just wants to lose weight, right? But we can make a, a terrible comment, a terrible piece of criticism, and it can have lasting effects. And I think that's what Sam Ballot went after. We love gossip, right? Absolutely love it. So think about this letter. So let's continue. Okay, it was written. It was reported among the nations. And Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore, you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become the king and even appoint the prophets to make proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now, this report will get to the king, so let's come meet together. So instead of the four times, you know, that he said the same thing over again, now the fifth time, he's going to get personal and he's going to make stuff up, right? Okay. I remember when I was the head coach at Cedar Crest. And, and the first time Jen came to watch a game, she's sitting in the stands in an away game. And one of the parents started cursing about me as she sat right next to Jen. Okay. And she's talking about and swearing about how I play the rich kids. Okay. I don't play the poor kids, but I only play the rich kids. First of all, I was still using my GPS to drive around Lebanon. So I didn't even know where the heck I was. Okay. I didn't know who anybody was. I didn't know who had money, who didn't. Okay. And, um, this, this parent was accusing me of playing rich kids. Then all of a sudden, the parent looks over to Jen and says, now, who's your kid on the team? Okay, and Jen says, well, I don't have a kid, but the coach is my, my husband. And, 
you, you know, I think it was amazing because the lady was embarrassed. Okay. And I actually followed up with the lady and said, you know, ma'am, I don't, I don't even know what you do for a living or how much money you have. You know, I don't know anything about that. I just know I'm going to play the best football players, you know, and right now your kid's not one of them. Her kid ended up being a captain for me when he was a senior. Okay. This was his sophomore year. So it was ironic because that was probably one of my favorite kids I ever coached. And the parent and I got along great, but she started off our relationship by saying that I play, I won't say the, uh, the, the cuss words out loud, but many cuss words of rich kids. Okay. So think about this. This is what's, what's happening here. So let's take a look and see what, what we think here. Okay. So when you look at that term up there in which was written, it, it is reported. Okay. In other, in other uh, versions that it said, they say, or there's a rumor. Okay. Now this is just personal opinions, you know, so I'm not sure announcing personal opinions is a good thing. So as church members, as believers, you know, if, if, you know, if this was Nehemiah's buddy, like Sam Ballard is claiming to be, we probably should never open up a statement by saying it's reported. It's not really our role to report things, you know, to people that especially may not be factual. So I think as believers, we have to take great caution in information that's given to us. You know, I serve on the trustee board at the Christian school. I need to take great caution in what people say to me, okay? Because there's a matter of interpretation there that, that turns into gossip. You know, and again, it says, don't speak a reckless word against a servant of Christ. So Ryan knows intimately why I, I get offended by this. And, and I've gone, I went through a situation this past week or two where we were, you know, I heard some reckless speech about believers and it bothers me, you know, because we better be right when we say it. You know what I mean? If you tell me that Mike Robinson, you know, is his theology is not very good, okay, and you're saying that to somebody else, you better make sure you're right. You know what I mean? And, and it better be, and, and you better be the authority over that. And I, 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 I've, I've learned to caution myself on that criticism when it's not my role. You know, I just thought I'd throw that all out there, right? Okay. Ryan, I love your smile. Okay. So, you know, the last thing that I would say too is the next distraction, you know, that Stanley identified was fear. Okay. There's a term called sedition. Okay, sedition means conduct or speech that's going to incite people to rebel against authority. Okay, that's what's happening here. We have sedition. Sambalat is doing that. He, he wants to incite this riot. Okay, so, you know, again, think about where Nehemiah came from. You know, King, King Artaxas, Artaxas, okay, I'm going to pronounce it one more, pronounce it right once. He put a lot of trust in Nehemiah you know, that he was going there to do this job. If he got word that this was actually happening, okay, I don't think he would receive it very well, okay? You know, the the um, the Persian kings, they didn't tolerate resistance from their subjects, okay? He would have had his head cut off, okay? So that that's that's out there. There's, there's a level of fear there that I imagine Nehemiah was going through. He didn't really show it. I don't see Nehemiah showing fear at this point, but it had to be taking place. Um, so I think that was important. You know, again, remember, um, you know, I, I really think that Sambalat was trying to create some type of division still, you know, to make sure that people 
you know, take, take that, uh, that authority away from Nehemiah. I think as leaders, we have to know how do we handle false accusation? So let's talk about that just a little bit. This is obviously false accusation. How do you handle it? Brad Burkholder is a great example because I had Brad come in and speak to, you know, 100, 200 teachers at one point. Okay. And I had a bunch of teachers approach me about, you know, how, how evil Chick-fil-A is because of their political, their political, um, you know, uh, associations, you know, with what they believe in, let's say. And I, I imagine Brad hears that. Okay. So I, I think, how, how do we approach this criticism? How do we, how do we approach false accusations? Well, I was thinking about, uh, the accusations of, to the king, right, where he was going to name himself king. I think, how do we deal with that mentally and emotionally beyond faith with God is saying, hey, I have a relationship, right? And I've established a relationship and I've established my character. And so this is not going to be believed just because somebody else says it. So I think knowing and investing in relationships is key so that people know who you are so that when that criticism pops up there's a there's a level of doubt uh, that doesn't go along with one's character do we spend time defending ourselves as leaders should we i think defending is is calm or natural you know if, if uh, accusation is made we want to defend it our character it depends what it is i guess that we want to defend. I mean, in here, I, I notice, you know, it's re reported among the nations. So yeah, it's like a very broad, you know, everyone's doing it. And then it's like, and Geshem says it's true. You know, he like throws one name out there, which they probably had talked maybe, you know, and so sometimes I feel like when there's accusations, it's like clarifying, where is it coming from? Like who because it could be just one person's opinion, like that lady that, you know, the coach that she's talking, she could have said like, well, everyone feels this way. She's including the nations, right. Of everyone feels this way, but it's really just her trying to, you know, in that situation, everybody wants to make them feel like their argument is they're representing the people. And sometimes it's just knowing sitting down and like Ray said, that relationship of, well, who is saying this and, you know, trying to really figure out dissecting, what the nations is maybe it is just this one person or maybe it's Geshem too so I think there's a lot of uh, power in the pause of taking a deep breath and knowing like before I re react on it like where is this coming from and how can I just you know in a relationship enter this you know accusation absolutely so the first four times he said I'm, I'm busy I can't come down you know, the fifth time they, he puts this whole scheme together to expose them. So let's see how, how, how Nehemiah responds to this. Okay, so Nehemiah says, I sent him a reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So I think, you know, obviously we see Nehemiah's response. You know, again, as leaders, do we defend our character? Do we respond to criticism? You know, is that worth our time? And how do we do it? I, I ultimately think that leaders do have to address, you know, accusations. Okay. 
how, how often, how frequently, I don't know. I mean, I, I like the direct approach that Nehemiah does. He stops everybody in their tracks and says, nothing you're saying is happening. Okay. Yeah, if we take, like, care, take care of the character, you know, take care of our character. God's going to take care of our reputation. Yeah, I think, I think also, I uh, kind of like to go back to, I think what, what Brad was saying. I, I think your, your character and your, your past, um, the way you handled things in the past, I think that carries a lot of weight um, when it comes to something like this. Um, you know, even going into it, I think the people around Nehemiah have seen him in action. He's a guy that gets his hands dirty. He has a humble approach, but he's also a very strong leader. And I think when, when you have that kind of above reproach, um, that, uh, I don't know, that kind of history going with you, it's already going to be in people's minds. Well, you know, I don't know if that sounds like him. Uh, you know, you know, what I mean, it comes down like and what, what, what Ray was saying with relationships. I think um, all of that goes into it. Absolutely. And, and I wonder sometimes if people have more faith in us than we have in ourselves. Right. Like I, I want to fist fight and get angry, you know, and and I don't need to because think about Nehemiah, you know, no other no other uh, governor before him had 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 uh, not taken the food allowance you know, had, had not taken the fringe benefits, you know, the people saw that, you know, so he, he you know, they, they know this is all baloney. Um, but I think what he says is categorically, nothing that you're saying is true. You're just making it up. Okay. So, you know, for me, it was always funny. Like when I, when I coached and I was one and nine, it, it is tough when you lose a game and you're like one and seven, one and eight, and you're like, oh my gosh, nothing works. Okay, the only thing that healed me after a loss when things were going bad was to get back to work. You know, I always used to tell my assistant coaches, I'll see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. on Saturday. We're going to watch film of the next opponent. And once you start watching film of the next opponent, it, it was like a healing mechanism. You forgot about how you got crushed the night before. Okay, and I think, you know, getting back to work is a healing mechanism. There's no doubt if you have a solid vision and you know what you're doing is right. Like that was the thing as a coach, like I knew film study and what we were doing to prepare for games was the right thing. So let's dive back into it and keep doing the right thing. Eventually what you do is going to work, you know, and I think that's a, that's a healer as well. So here at the bottom, we see another one of those telegraph prayers that Nehemiah goes through. Okay. So he responded and then he stops and pauses, speaks to the Lord, and asks for him to strengthen my hands. Not to fight, okay, but to work. Get me back to work. Give me the courage, energy, you know, and attention to go back to work. Okay, next passage. Okay, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Methabel who was shut in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because the men are coming to kill you by night. They're coming to kill you. But I said, 
Should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple and save his life? I will not go. Okay, so again, here's another situation, okay, that, you know, this individual, okay, and, and again, don't ever fault me for pronunciation, okay, but, but Shimana, let's use that one, okay, this individual, okay, was, you know, it's forbidden for a layman to go beyond the burnt offering in the temp temple, and Nehemiah knew this, and this person was a false prophet, okay? This was somebody that Samballot sent, okay? Just another setup, okay? And he tried to scare him and tried to elicit a response of fear. And let's go into the house of God inside the temple and let's close those temple doors, okay? So again, Romans 4.3 says, what's the scripture say? Isaiah 8.20 said, if they speak not according to the word, it's because there's no light in them. So this person was recommending something that was not, not biblical, okay? Nehemiah knew that. He knew that response was not biblical. So of course he stated that I am not gonna go, okay? This person was a Jew living in Jerusalem. So he was living amongst Nehemiah, okay? He fabricated this story about you know, the plot on Nehemiah's life and again, it shows in verse 11 that Nehemiah would not get distracted, okay? You have to think about it. Nehemiah embraced the vision, but also the, the vision embraced him, okay? So I think that's very important that it's, it's obvious here with his quick answers. No, I won't go, okay? And again, you know, you think about it, it's tempting. You know, I am not going to be afraid of the unrest that's in society, okay? You're either, you know, you're either faithful and comfortable with your Lord or you're not. And I think that's what we've seen over the last six to eight months in our society is fear. You know, fear has been propagated, you know? And I think at what point do we stop, spend time with the Lord and really consider, you know, what, what, what is, you know, according to the word, you know, as Isaiah says. Any comments? Okay, let's keep rolling. Okay, so we get into verse 12 and 14. Okay, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sam Ballad had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then he would give me a bad name and discredit me. They're, they're attacking his character. Okay, remember, Tobiah and Samballot, my God, because of what they have done, remember also the prophet Nadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Okay, you have to know that there are people, okay, the enemy is around you at all times. You know, that, that line on the chain is in the room with you all the time. Okay, they are going to encourage you to commit a sin. We really have to be, uh, I think, focused on everything we do and is it biblical? Okay, and, and, and it's hard. I mean, you know, again, when you're in the world, it's tough not to be of the world. Okay, and I, I think that's a very difficult, I know it is for me, um, because, 
you know, I'm, I'm not equally yoked with all my coworkers, you know, and I think that's a tough thing. Um, that, that's a nice draw for me. And, you know, even in the ministry, you know, sometimes you think that you would hope in, in ministry or in the church, people, people are committed to serving the Lord. Okay. But I think even there that, you know, sin abounds at times. So, you know, for us, I think we got to be careful in all environments, but again, place ourselves in positions that we can handle. You know, I used to joke when I first started coaching football, I was still, I was still drinking a case of beer a week. Okay. And, uh, you know, for me to go to a coaching convention, I stopped drinking any alcohol at a younger age because I knew that it wasn't, it wasn't supporting my testimony. So I'd go to these coaching conferences thinking that I could go with four or 500 coaches to an event where, where the, the alcohol was flowing. And I thought I could keep my testimony. And at first that didn't work real well. Okay. Five or six years later, I was a guy in the middle of the four and 500 coaches with the Powerade or the Gatorade, and I would be babbling until three in the morning about football. Okay, I could handle it, but you've got to know what situ- you know. Five years previous, I-, I wasn't I wasn't drinking a Powerade. Okay, I couldn't handle it. You eventually can, and you got to know what situations as believers we can put ourselves into. Any comments with that? I think it's a good discussion with our children, you know, and, and what can your kids handle? What can't they, you know, can they handle the public sector? You know, when can they handle the public sector? When can they handle non-Christian friends? You know, all that stuff has to take place, I believe, but it's got to be in God's time for that child. You know, I have one kid that could handle it very soon in, in, in life. The other one, no way. Okay. And, and you, you watch that as they become teenagers and college students and adults, you know, it's like, what can they handle? And you've got to put them in environments that they can handle and then challenge them that when they, when they, you know, when they're grounded, because I do believe our, you know, as believers, we need to get out into the, into the battle, but it's, it's gotta be when they're ready. Okay. So we'll keep rolling. Slow me down if you want. Okay, so the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. When our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations were afraid, they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. And in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. Okay, so think about this. You know, nothing ever stopped. They, They kept trying to you know, uh, get after Nehemiah and the work. The work now is complete, okay? This is the end of the, like, the first part of the story, actually, in Nehemiah. The physical labor and the mental anguish are are officially completed and accomplished, okay? You know, Nehemiah has now built what God wanted. He's, you know, he's created what God wanted. Now we're going to see as we move towards the end of, you know, middle to the end of Nehemiah, now we've got to learn how to protect what God has built, okay? So we've gotten to that place. I mean, holy mackerel, this is a whole story in itself of trying to get God's work completed um, initially, you know, the physical element of this. But now now we're going to get into some other things in the rest of Nehemiah that you're going to see. He had challenges now to maintain God's work. So you think about the church, okay, the Christian school. Okay, different different elements 
uh, that, that God is working, upward sports, you know, whatever ministries that we're talking about, you, you know, now there's an element that we have to protect the accomplishments, okay? Now, remember, Tobiah was, was tied to Judah through marriage, okay? So there was always that internal, you know, enemy. There's always going to be the enemy within, okay? And, and I, I think that we have to realize that over and over and over again. Okay, so just because of that, thinking about that one verse I wanted to at least bring up too is, you know, um, when you read that last passage that in verse 17, in those days the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. Okay, so just because, you know, uh, you're, are you committed to God before your family? And that's a hard concept to understand, but that's essentially what's going on here. You know, that whole, that whole statement of blood is thicker than water, okay? I'm not sure that statement ever applies in a relationship with Christ, okay? We've got to be careful because there are family members, okay, that will distract you from your ministry. There were family members that, that will distract you from maintaining righteous behavior. There's family members that will detract from you maintaining your character. That's a true statement, you know, and it's a hard one to swallow, but it's true. And it's true in this situation. You know, Tobiah was a family member. Okay. But, but he was taking away from the ministry of God. Anybody experienced that with, you know, close family members? You know, you look at Matthew 10, 10, 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Tough pill to swallow. Okay, I'm a committed dad, I'm a committed husband, committed family member, you know, but I also have a lot of unsaved relatives. You know, you really got to process that. Any thoughts? So I, verse 15, and related to what you said, I, it got me thinking, not everything that God calls us to do and that God is behind will be done quickly. And so uh, this is very situational, right? And we look at Isaiah, for instance, where God calls him and he has this great vision in Isaiah chapter six. And Isaiah says, yes, yeah, send me. Well, then the very next chapter or right after that, God says, great, you're not going to succeed. <laughs> you know, he, he's going to go, but he's not going to convert or change anybody's mind. And so I, I was thinking about, you know, 11, 12 years ago when we moved up here, we had committed to come to a church in Mannheim. Uh, and we were trying to sell our house and it was at the peak of the, the, or the low of the housing market, uh, back, uh, back during the last recession, major recession. And we couldn't sell our house. We showed our house four or five times a week and we just couldn't sell it. And so at some point, Morgan's parents who we absolutely love and they love the Lord, they said, well, maybe God doesn't want you guys to go. That's why it's so hard for you to sell your house. And yet it was remembering, no, we, we're confident in what God called us to do. Uh, but not everything God calls us to do will be fruitful immediately, right? There, there's some tilling of the ground that often has to happen. Uh, and sometimes it's in our own hearts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's huge pressure. I mean, you know, when God is, you know, is challenging you with not selling a house, for example, that's, that's challenging. It takes your sight off the vision, you know, and, and that's, that's one of those things that you got to just be committed. You got you to know it's the Lord's will for sure. All right, as we finish, okay, for many in Judah were under the oath to him since he was a son-in-law to, 
Jeshachanah, son of Arah, and his son of Jehonan, had married the daughter of Meshachalum, son of Barakah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. Okay. Nehemiah, through this whole passage, was unwavering. Okay. Totally knew what was going on. Okay. Totally felt confident, it seemed like. Okay. And responded accordingly in very limited speech. Okay. I, I, I like to get in arguments. I like to, you know, get off and, and go back and forth. And I think that that's not appropriate. You just tell them they're wrong, you move on. You know, and I think Nehemiah really showed me personally in this passage. One thing it reminded me of, you know, I, I introduced the verse in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, you know, and talked about what weapons God gives us to fight. You know, God, we have to fight the strongholds of the enemy with weapons. And I'm working with another guy on this, on that passage in 2 Corinthians. And it really has, it really has challenged me to think, what are our weapons as believers? And for me, this verse came up this week. I'm thinking, you know, if, if we show these weapons, you know, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, those are our weapons. You know, you just have to define those weapons in your own mind. How are you going to get better at using your weapons? Okay. As a believer. So you are equipped to fight at any time. And this is how you do it, you know? And, and again, we have a worldly way of fighting. It's with gossip. It's, it, it's with, you know, argument. It's with anger. And I just don't think that's what God calls us to do at all, you know? And, and in fact, it's, you know, it's something the enemy just, you know, preys on. So that was a, a passage, again, very familiar, but I, I, I tore it apart in thinking of these are my weapons, you know, and, and I have to be equipped. So I want to go deeper and deeper and deeper on what does it mean to be the belt of truth? To me, that's scripture, right? Okay, so I need to keep an index card in my pocket and have scripture in my pocket, have scripture written in a, a memory verses, you know, that's going to happen over and over and over again. Rush play to righteousness. My character counts. Okay, I got to constantly worry about my moral authority, right? You can go on and on and on. Okay, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. Okay, and request with this in mind, and the Lord always keep praying for the Lord's people. Okay, obviously, it's the end of the verse in that, that Ephesians. Okay, but again, I think Nehemiah has shown us that he does always go to prayer. Okay, which I think is very key as well. And I do believe Nehemiah always knew to be alert. Okay, so we got 10 minutes left. I just want to kind of close and get your final thoughts. Usually what I hear from you folks really helps me to, um, you know, kind of bring things together in my own thoughts in terms of what leadership is, is what's being pulled out for leadership out of this Nehemiah past. So I do appreciate your feedback. So a couple of things that came up, obviously, Andy Stanley's one I, I always like to go back to because I love this book. Um, I'm just, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. I was thinking today, I'm, I'm on like page, you know, whatever it is, 225 in his visioneering book. And I think I've read it four times. I've never read this, a book like that over and over again. And I, I find myself, you know, the book is yellowed. It's been highlighted, written in, and, and it always is true. You keep coming back to this visioneering book. He did a nice job with this book for sure. 
Um, so, so Ryan, if you ever ask me who an influential author is, Andy Stanley Visioneering, okay? Father was Charles Stanley. And I got to tell you a Charles Stanley story. I thought this was unique. I read this this week. Charles Stanley, okay, so Andy Stanley's sisters were getting married, okay? And Charles Stanley married his daughters. Makes sense, right? He's a pastor. He married his daughters. But Charles Stanley gave the advice to his daughters, and I'm using this, by the way, so I, I actually told Casey this already, okay? Charles Stanley said, you know, it's not about the wedding. It's about the marriage. The marriage is the vision. The wedding is the plan. It's one of the plans, right? Too many people are worried about the wedding and not the vision, which is the marriage, okay? So Charles Stanley, what he said to his daughters was, I want you to wink at me at any point during the wedding, if you think that this marriage is not right, okay? He said, I will pass out and I'll fake falling on the floor. That way you don't have to feel the pressure of, you know, all the people, all the relatives coming to town, all the planning that took, took place. He was going to take a dive for his daughter. So I told Casey this week, I said, when you're getting married, you wink at me and I'll fake a heart attack or I'll pass out, okay? Because I want to make sure the vision you're comfortable with it. That marriage, you better make sure you're confident about marriage, okay? I don't care about the wedding. The wedding is, is peanuts, okay? I can still uh, remember arguing with my mother-in-law about having booze at the wedding, okay? I can't believe I did that. It's ridiculous. The wedding is meaningless. It's about the marriage, okay? So, you know, again, Andy Stanley, favorite author, Ryan. Okay, this is uh, another comment he made. There is a general distrust for those who are trying to do anything new, innovative, especially if they claim to be doing it for something other than their personal gain. You know, people don't trust you if you're trying something new. Okay, there's got to be a personal motive, right? You've got to have something going on. It's got to be about making more money or a new position or something. Heaven forbid it's about God, right? Okay. Nehemiah walked away from the very influential position at the king's right hand. We've got to remember that. Okay. When he arrived at Jerusalem, he, he refused to exploit his position as governor. So I think that really helped in this whole situation. Okay. That he walks away from positions. People are always wondering, what the heck is this guy building this wall for? I love that. Okay. Have people want to know why the heck you're doing something because they think you want personal gain. And it's just because you want God's game. Okay. Andy Stanley said anger is a form of focus. Anger is distracting. That was pretty influential for me because I tend to get a little wound up. Okay. Don't be distracted by criticism. Take your frustrations and anger to God. Okay. Stanley said we waste, we waste vision time answering critics. Okay. I found that interesting. I know we have to talk to people about accusations, but I, I might even just tell people you're wasting my time talking to you because I got a vision. God gave me a vision. I got to do it. You're taking away from that. Okay. Again, great verse that Paul says, faithful is he who calls you. He's also going to bring it to pass. Okay. And again, you know, furrow ground for fear is when you're going through some kind of vision for sure. Okay. Constantly over and over again, I just, you know, I wanted to finish with this and just think about what distracts us as leaders from a vision. Okay. You know, I, I get really, really frustrated. Now I read this book four or five times, remember. Okay. 
So Ray, you can bring us back to the leadership at Mount Calvary. I get so frustrated when we don't follow through a vision. Okay. So if we're going to ask me to be on a committee, we better do something. You know, don't waste my time and put me on a committee unless we're going to do something. Okay. So that's because of this book, you know, so what you're telling me is if we don't do what we, we set out to do, then it really wasn't God ordained or you got distracted from your vision. It's one of the two. Okay. And I'm going to start opening up my meetings that way. So you put me on committees. I'm going to start saying that stuff. Any comments? Are your drugs wearing off or? I'm completely off them now, actually. I'm, I'm no longer, <laughs> I'm no longer taking uh, illegal drugs for my pain. So this is natural, baby. I'm oh, this is... Hey, Mike, I, I tried that approach on, on a school board meeting uh, on a committee I was on, and I haven't been invited since, so I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> Yeah, Steph, I, you know, again, usually my response when they ask me to be on something, and I said this to Ray, are you sure you want me to do this? You know, and, and they, they have come back. Now, I had about a 10-year reprieve or seven-year reprieve, Steph, so it does take a little longer. <laughs> okay, again, you know, chapter six takeaways. I, I'm not going to repeat one. Okay, number two, remember what sedition is. Okay, and it could be now in this day and age, a tweet, a post, a report, et cetera. You know, and I think we need to be very careful about being reckless against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, I really take that personal for, for our own brothers and sisters in Christ because, you know, again, um, I'm working on my character. You know, it's, 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 it's a never ending process. I'm going to trip up. And if I trip up in front of the wrong person, I really don't want them, you know, spread rumors about me. You know, because I got I got a lot of work for God to do, and I don't want that to prevent anything. So I think we need to be very careful about, you know, how critical we are of believers. It's a hard. I, I've gone through this balance. Like, at, at what point do you work really hard as believers, protecting from the enemy coming in, and at what point do you say that's really not the enemy? You know, like that. It's hard because you can almost get legalistic, right? I, I think that's a tough, tough thing for me. Uh, I'm, I'm still balancing that. I'm not doing well with it right now. I'm processing that. How's that? I, I'm just constantly processing how to handle that. I think okay, we all do, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's, it's, very, it's a very hard thing to – because you, you, got, you, you know what's in your heart. You don't exactly know what's in the other person's heart that may be accusing you or challenging you. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's tough. I think it's a it's a walk that we're we're all we're all walking through. Absolutely. Now remember again, remind yourself that every man and woman with a vision stands out. Okay, so if you if you're gifted with a vision from the Lord, you are going to stand out. Okay, but you're not accountable to your critics. You're accountable to your God. You know, so if you're chosen to, to champion a vision, it don't matter what people think. Okay, because God is the, is your critic. Can you God. repeat the verse of, I think you said Paul said that if God gives you a vision, he's going to bring it to pass. Which verse was that? Yeah, it was Thess Thessalonians, I believe. Um, I'll get that for you for sure. I think I had that in my own notes. Yeah, let me let me check my own notes on that. 
Yeah, I'll I'll have to get that to you. Let me let me finish here and I'll get that to you, Heidi. Okay. Hey, Mike, you had it on the slide. Keep going forward a little bit. Did I? Yeah, just keep going towards the end. Oh, toward the end. Right there. Okay, there we go. First Thessalonians five twenty four, Heidi. I'm sorry. Thanks, right, man. I love when students are paying attention. It's good, right? Everybody else must be sleeping. Okay. So I, I love this concept too. Like think about this concept, what's called projection. Okay. So Sam Ballot was one of these people, you know, the, that, that, that it embodied, you know, the term projection. Okay. So basically what that means is, you know, and I don't have to, you know, insult you, you can read through that. Um, but basically when you have leaders or, you know, people of influence, Okay, and they have impure motives. Okay, their actions are laced with selfish ambitions. Okay, and they assume that people are just like them. So, you know, I, I experienced that quite a bit in my profession. Okay, that, it, you know, again, you know, my profession in educational leadership is very political, small town politics. You know, how do you get yourself to the next, you know, leadership role? You know, how do you get yourself to a position of influence? And, you know, many people think there's always a motive and it's not God ordained, you know? So I think, you know, if, if I would want to be a superintendent of a school, many people would believe that's a financial motivation, okay? Um, many people might think that's a, you know, kind of self-prophecy. That's something I want to do, you know? And, and I think that we have to be careful of that projection from others, because there are other people that don't even know God. They, they, they think your motive is simply this, and it's just like their own. So you gotta be very, very careful because as you're rubbing elbows with people within your sphere of influence, you've gotta know where they're coming from, you know? And there's a, there's, when I started this teaching, I used this, I, again, another author, Ryan, that I love, Spiritual Discipleship by Blackaby fantastic book, okay, and he talks about what lens you're looking through, okay, what's your Christian worldview, so before you talk to anybody or argue with them about any concept, okay, let's you're talking about, um, you know, character, or you're, you're talking about abortion, or you're talking about whatever, the first thing you should ask them, is, so what's your spiritual, um, you know, what, what's your spiritual view, you know, what's your worldview, okay, now let's argue about the topic, right? If they don't have the right worldview, it doesn't matter what they have to say. You know, you know what I'm saying? So like I wrote my dissertation on parenting. So that was the first slide in my dissertation defense. I don't care what people think about parenting if you don't have the correct worldview. If you do, then let's talk, right? So I think that's something we've got to be very careful of. Okay, next week. So what we're going to really see at this part, uh, this part in next week is that, you know, Nehemiah existed for the walls, but now the walls exist for the people. So we're, we're going to learn how to protect what God's given us. You know, I think that's very important because I think God's given us so much. So we are going to really now um, see, you know, the next step in this process because the work has been completed. Okay. Any thoughts? Me and myself wound up a couple cups of coffee and some good Bible 
text and good company gets me started off on a Saturday. So what do we got? What are your thoughts? Well, I think what we were just talking, what you were just talking about, um, you know, finding out their worldview. I think it's not that you don't care, but it gives you, it gives you an understanding from where they're coming from. You know what I mean? So you know how to approach them. Absolutely. You know, we have to care. You know, Christ calls us to care. Um, but yeah, it just gives you a different, a different uh, viewpoint and a different understanding of where they're coming from. Because it's a completely different uh, conversation then. And you know, it, it doesn't, then it doesn't surprise us. Right. I think that's part of it. Right. It doesn't surprise us that that's how they're approaching a problem. I tell my kids all the time, sinners act like sinners, right? We're, we're not surprised by the direction of the world or people and why they make the decisions that they do or value the things that they do because sinners act like sinners. And, um, and we are too, right. That's our, that's our natural, uh, uh you know, operating mechanism, but but we have to fight, we fight against it. So I, I, I guess I'm connecting the two thoughts between what Mike said and, and Ryan said. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times I, I miss that, you know, I got to step back and say, okay, what, what is, where are they coming from? You know, what, what is their worldview? Absolutely. Any other thoughts? I was listening to a podcast this week and one of your points there, Mike, reminded me of it. It's talking about change and somehow even some of our closest people, like when we want to change something, that topic was a little bit about like weight loss, but it was like, you know, even our spouse or people close to us, you know, can be actually turned out of either, you know, pride or maybe jealousy, whatever the reason is. Sometimes who we think is going to be our biggest cheerleader can sometimes be the biggest naysayer. They don't intentionally do it. But when someone creates and they want to change a way of life or a pattern or something, it creates ripple effects, right, to those around us. So, like, you know, if, if my wife wants to eat healthy, well, my diet changes, right, because all of a sudden her choice. So he was just talking about how change creates that ripple effect. And so kind of what your one point kind of referred to it. So it made me think about how sometimes we want these people to be our biggest cheerleaders, but because of that ripple effect, it doesn't appear that way or come across that way. And I want to make sure if I'm that way, you know, make sure my attitude's in check if someone else around me is trying to change and make sure that I'm not that naysayer as well. Absolutely. Good point. Awesome. Any other thoughts? All right, so let's dig in. We're going to go probably, you know, five-ish more weeks and finish Nehemiah. And, you know, honestly, I've been motivated. I, I've never read the Bible cover to cover, okay? So my role this year is to go from an educational um, resource or expert to a spiritual expert. I want people calling me a spiritual expert from now on instead of an educational guy. Um, not that being an educational guy is not important, but I think being a spiritual expert is more important. So my next study, Ray, I think is going to be David actually. So I'm, I, I'm very, awesome. I'm very interested in David. So that's just like, you know, there's a coming attractions, right? So we don't have any movies coming out nowadays, but I think I want to dig into David next. So, you know, maybe like six months from now, we'll do David. Okay. Any other final thoughts? Okay, 
Have a great Saturday. Get it done. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you, Thanks, Mike. Uncle Eric, good to see you, buddy. You have a good day. Hey, tell me a little, you got to turn your microphone on now. Tell me about your house. Mike, this whole Zoom thing is new to me, buddy. Try, try. My life, man. I'm like a, I'm like a, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep up. Hey, tell me about your house. Uh, we were actually just out again yesterday looking at it. Uh, it didn't sell. It, it would be a handful. It, it would be a, a financial. Uh, <laughs> it would take up all my time. Um, it would be a labor of love, but we're very comfortable with plan B, which is to stay here in the house that we're in. It would be very cheap living. It would. We wouldn't have to move. Uh, I know what I'm getting. I know what the neighbors are. You know what I mean? So it's not a bad plan B. You know, you, you think you want something, but you definitely listen for the Lord, for him to direct you because... I, we were out, like I said, we were out yesterday. It would be so much work. <laughs> so yeah, I was under the assumption that it was sold and you just missed it because it got sold. It, it's a foreclosure. Uh, Mike, the, it's going for $175,000. There's been calf offers on the place well over asking price. Somebody offered $100,000 over asking price. It's just, it's it's insanity. It's, it's just such a hot market and people are... You know, and I'm not going to try to compete with that. You know what I mean? We have an offer in, and, you know, if that sticks, great. If it doesn't, so be it, you know, so. Oh, you do have an offer in, good. Yeah, yeah, just just conventional 175, you know what I mean? So, and that's kind of our max, you know what I mean? I, I'm not going to go a dollar over and put undue stress, you know, on the family or myself, so. When we, when we looked at our land that we bought, it was it was listed for one hundred eighty thousand. Right? And uh, my initial offer was like you know sixty thousand less. Wow. Over over six months, they got there. Yeah. You know, and, and below. You yeah. Know, it's just one of those things. If God wants it, he'll work it out. You know, Mike, it's kind of funny. Um, it's an investment group that bought the property from Fannie Mae. And I think they probably are grandfathered into the clause that Fannie Mae, you know, would, would follow the stipulations. Um, they're turning down offers that are, there's no reason for them to turn down in in my mind, you know, except maybe the, the criteria that Fannie Mae had set. So we're still.